Welcome to EMS Cast, the show that brings high-level, advanced education to you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orbit. And I'm Matt Mendez, and we're your hosts. I'm really excited about today's guest, Ross. You know, I am too. But before we get there, Matt, let me just set the scene for today's topic. Okay. It's a hot June day. Yep. You're called to a street corner by police for a combative patient. Of course. As you drive up, you notice multiple vehicles with broken windows. Why not? You approach the scene and see a naked man spread eagle. Four police officers attempting to hold him down. Granted, with only moderate success. Right. This sound familiar to any calls you ever ran? Well, I was a paramedic in Florida, so it sounds like pretty much every Tuesday. But, you know, I never realized how much was going on with these patients from a pathophysiology standpoint. And to be honest, how nuanced the cause of their agitation could be. Yeah, you know, I think for any of us that have spent any time on the streets, this is really going to ring home and be a familiar call for us. And all the treatments may be simple for these patients. The physiology can definitely be complex. So I invited Janetta Iwanaki to talk to us today about these complexities. I don't know what all your titles are. I mean, you're a board certified toxicologist. <laughs> you got anything else behind your name? Uh, just MD. Uh, just is the wrong word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't let her fool you, Ross. Dr. Iwanaki is a badass. She did a residency at Denver General. She then did a fellowship in medical toxicology at the Rocky Mountain Poison Center. She's currently an attending physician in the Denver Health ED, and she's the interim director of research at the Rocky Mountain Poison Center. So today we're going to be talking about toxidromes. Toxidrome, a constellation of signs and symptoms associated with exposure to a specific class of drugs or toxins. I'm going to spend the next little bit getting into the weeds, talking about various toxidromes with Janetta. And you should definitely listen to that because it's great. But honestly, here's what you really need to know about these recreational drugs. If they're on an upper, put them down. Benzo, benzo, benzo. Benzos, benzos, benzos. Or if your department is lucky enough to have it, ketamine. This is going to be the safest thing for you and for the patient. Next, if they're on a downer, i.e. unconscious with slow or no respirations, you check a sugar, give naloxone, and if you have to, you mechanically support the respirations with a BVM or advanced airway. That's it. Keep it simple. Yeah, that's an amazing way to think about it. And honestly, that's how I still think about it when they initially hit the emergency department. But let's start heading out into those weeds and hear a bit more of a sophisticated thought process from someone who is way smarter than us. Oftentimes, you don't really know what a drug is just based on its name or how somebody describes it. And so looking for these toxidromes oftentimes will give you the clues you need to figure out what to do with that patient. Um, so generally, I think of breaking these into two broad physiologic classes. Um, you have your physiologic stimulants, and then you have your physiologic depressants. So basically, your uppers and your downers. When you think about stimulants, these are anything that gets you amped up and really kind of raises that level of physiologic awareness in your body. Stimulants induce our fight or flight response. So think about what you need to fight. You need your heart rate to be pumping blood to all your muscles and organs. You need to be aggressive and mean, and you need your eyes to be ready for an attack. So it makes sense that these people have large pupils, tachycardia, hypertension, and are mean as hell. The first classic toxidrome from this category is your sympathomimetic toxidrome. Your sympathomimetics are going to be kind of your pure stimulants. Those drugs that directly activate that sympathetic fight-or-flight system. So most commonly meth and cocaine, but can include prescription medications like Adderall and Ritalin. And even MDMA and LSD are considered in this class uh, among some of the other experimental compounds. The other classic stimulant toxidrome is the anticholinergic toxidrome. 
Anticholinergics will inhibit the effects of acetylcholine. As a review, acetylcholine is the main neurochemical responsible for activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Thus, if we inhibit the effects of acetylcholine, we're essentially allowing the sympathetic system to go on unchecked. And if we do that, then we get similar, but kind of a slightly different toxidrome to our sympathomimetics. This is your classic toxidrome where somebody is mad as a hatter. What a regrettably large head you have. I should very much like to hat it. Hat it? Yes. Red is a beat. All those things that you remember from reading through a book. Anticholinergic toxidrome. Red as a beat. Red and flush skin. Dry as a bone. Dry skin. Blind. As a bat. Large pupils. Mad as a hatter. Confused, hallucinating, and incomprehensible speech. And oftentimes we see that with either medications like diphenhydramine, things that we give uh, clinically like atropine, but you also see it with plants and other things people experiment with like jimson weed or certain mushrooms. Moving on to the downers or physiologic depressants. These are going to be your CNS depressant drugs that are going to cause somebody to be sleepy, sluggish, and less responsive. Examples of these medications are heroin, oxycodone, and fentanyl. And these are the drugs that basically work directly on your mu receptors and lead to both that euphoria, dopamine release um, that we think of with the opioid use disorder side of things, as well as the analgesia that we think of as the desired effect, and things like respiratory depression that we think of as the bad effect. Other things to think about, lamotil or emodium is another weak mu agnus that's occasionally abused you might see on the streets. Next class is your sedatives, which all relates to your GABA receptors in your brain, which are your happy, sleepy receptors. Most classically, these are your benzodiazepines and less commonly abused barbiturates, but can also include the non-benzo-benzo-like drugs, which the Z drugs is what we call them for short, because this includes things like Ambien or Zolpidin, as well as Azopaclone and other things in that class that help people sleep in between their night shifts. The other sort of Atypical drugs that fit into this are things like baclofen or GHB, which work on uh, similar receptors but have slightly different effects. All right, Matt, let's bring it all back. So, you know, when I was on the ambulance, I really just separated these into kind of the two big classes, the uppers and the downers. If they were fighting me, they were definitely on an upper. And if I was having to fight them to keep them awake, then they were probably on a downer. But there are some nuances in the physical exam between each of these drug subclasses. So can you just spend a little more time for us talking about the differences we may see in our physical exam? Yeah, I really like that. If they're fighting you, you know you're likely dealing with a stimulant. Within the sympathomimetic class of stimulants, we should expect to see all those things the body needs to win a fight. So that's big pupils, fast heart rate, high blood pressure, fast deep breaths, and agitation, along with diaphoresis. With anticholinergics, the subtle difference will be in the mental status with the Mad Hatter picture, meaning less severe agitation and more confusion and hallucinations. And the biggest thing here is going to be the lack of diaphoresis. In other words, these people are going to be dry as a bone. Now, on the other hand, if you're struggling to keep them awake or breathing, you're probably dealing with a downer. These will all give you a depressed mental status, but you'll expect your opiates to give you the pinpoint pupils and depressed respiratory rate. While your sedatives, on the other hand, will depress the mental state, but the patient will retain relatively normal vital signs, and respiratory status will usually be unaffected. The exception here is if they are taken in massive quantities or co-ingested with other CNS depressants. So when it comes to treatment... A lot of these drugs are going to be treated similarly pre-hospitally, particularly if you think of them in those two classes. So something that's a stimulant where that person is agitated, tachycardic, rowdy, and fighting you, those are the people who are going to need a sedation medication. 
something to balance out that upper is going to be a downer. Similarly, if it's a depressant, you know, most of them are going to have similar effects. They're going to have CNS depression. They're going to have respiratory depression. They're going to be hard to keep awake. And so the biggest goal there is just going to be to support their breathing and provide that supportive care so that they can um, sort of metabolize through whatever that drug is. The great thing about this is you don't actually have to know exactly what drug they took. You just have to react to what you're seeing clinically in front of you and react to how you're seeing those vital signs change and how you're seeing that mental status change over time. Now that's golden. Let's pause and just focus on that for a second. You don't have to know what they took. You just have to respond to what you're seeing in front of you and how things are changing over time and with your treatments. Okay, but what's the fun in not trying to figure it out? So let's just do a few cases, kind of highlight the differences in these toxidromes and see if we can't figure it out and talk about their treatments a little bit. So first case, you're called by the police department. Your patient was found running through a residential neighborhood naked, um, breaking car windows. When you arrive, the patient is being held down by two police officers and three firefighters and still fighting. What's your initial concern here? So my biggest worry when I hear this case is this sends up red flags for me all over the place that this is an extremely agitated patient. And anytime somebody is this extremely agitated, they get um, really deranged vital signs. And along with that, they get deranged physiology. Somebody who's that agitated has a lot of muscular activity, um, has, because of that muscular activity, got hyperthermia, um, which causes cellular dysfunction. Along with that, they begin doing um, a fair amount of anaerobic respiration and build up a huge amount of acidosis. So the combination of hyperthermia and acidosis puts these people at extremely high risk um, for going on to develop dysrhythmias and cardiac arrest. Um, so when I hear this, that's my first worry. Yeah, and these are some of the famous cases that we've heard in the news in recent years of um, people who just suddenly die in police custody when they've been fighting with the police. Um, and a big part is just that severe metabolic abnormality and derangements that they've caused through both the drugs they did and the fighting that they were doing with us as we were trying to restrain them and keep them safe. So, okay. We've decided that this patient is a danger to himself. He's causing some severe metabolic derangements with the amount of fighting he's doing. So we're going to progress with attempting to control that. How are we going to control that uh, metabolic derangement? I mean, I think the biggest thing is when you have somebody who's hot and agitated like this person is, you want to get them cool and calm. The easiest and most important way to do that um, in both in EMS and almost any scenario is really with sedatives. The big thing with sedatives is they will essentially slow down your CNS processes, slow down your brain, which kind of is going to bring a cascade of effects that leads to decreased agitation, decreased temperature, and decreased kind of metabolic heat production and acid production. So let's pause. Ross, you guys are describing a patient who is experiencing excited delirium. They're so agitated and have increased their metabolic drive so much that they are developing an acidosis that could kill them. They need rapid sedation to halt this process. Benzodiazepines like midazolam, IV, or IM are a great option here. Another great option for the severely agitated patient with limited access is intramuscular ketamine. The rapid onset and reliability of ketamine is why many agencies are adding this medication to their protocols. One very important aspect of giving IM ketamine is that you, as the medic, should seek out the accepting physician in the ED and let them know that the patient got IM ketamine because Without that handoff information, that patient is going to look like someone who needs to be intubated. 
Yeah, and depending on the ED physician you hand this off to, they may or may not be comfortable with ketamine, may or may not have had a lot of experience with using ketamine and the giant doses that we're giving for excited delirium. And so if they're not comfortable with it, they'll probably want to intubate this patient. And that's okay, but they probably don't need it. The great thing about ketamine is despite the severe depression and mental status it produces, the patient actually generally retains their respiratory drive and continues to kind of protect their own airway. Not always, but generally. And if you don't have ketamine, then, you know, benzos, benzos, benzos. Benzos, benzos, benzos. And then maybe even more benzos. It may take more than you think. As Janetta says here, the goal is to get them calm, cool, and relaxed. And so by calm, what I mean is sedative medications when they need it. Benzodiazepines oftentimes are our first line choice in most cases, with the goal being to calm down the brain, calm down the vital signs, um, and decrease that muscular activity. When I say cool, the biggest goal there, again, is just to decrease all that agitation that's causing increased muscular activity and increased heat production because hyperthermia in these cases is the number one predictor of mortality. And then finally, when I say relaxed, the big thing is to try to not just sedate them, but get them in a calm, quiet environment where they're not having ongoing stimulation. So now the patient is sedated and we're able to get a physical exam. So our physical exam shows a heart rate of 160, a blood pressure of 172 over 90, a respiratory rate of 32. His pupils are six millimeters and reactive bilaterally, and skin is very diaphoretic and warm to the touch. This sure sounds like a sympathomimetic toxicity to me. So a few things about this case that sort of really put my mind in that direction. The first thing is that's this type of agitation where somebody is running around and really both aggressive and physical oftentimes goes along with the sympathomimetic toxidrome. But not only that, when we get into some of these more details with the physical exam, the pupils that are relatively large, the skin that is diaphoretic, um, along with having vital signs that um, show that increased sympathetic tone, really all together uh, looks like a sympathomimetic toxicity. Great. Can you kind of distinguish this from some of our other uppers? Like, say, anticholinergics, I feel like, present with big pupils, agitation, uh, hallucinations, a lot of the same things. One is a little bit more subtle, but I think in a case like this, it really comes out. And that's the type of mental status changes that you see. One of the ways this was once put to me by one of our other toxicology attendings is that patients who are having sympathomimetic toxicity uh, will scream at you with lots of obscenities, and you can understand those obscenities. Bro, I smoke crack. I smoke some fucking crack with me. Wow. <laughs> we gotta get out of here. Let's go fucking run. Let's run like we're fucking lions and tigers and bears. Let's fucking run. Somebody with an anticholinergic toxicity will be saying lots of words, but they're mumbled and kind of under their breath and difficult to understand. So if somebody says F you and you can tell they're saying F you, it's probably a sympathomimetic. The diaphoresis here, I think, is the other big clue. So generally speaking, people with sympathomimetic toxicity will have that sweatiness to them that can be pretty striking. Whereas somebody with an anticholinergic toxicity, generally speaking, uh, will be dry. All right, let's move on to case number two. So in this case, we're called by boyfriend for an unconscious party. Upon arrival, we find a 30-something female on the floor of an apartment building. You note on exam, she has shallow and irregular respirations and is only breathing a couple of times a minute. 
Heart rate and blood pressure are normal. Her pupils are two millimeters, and she is cool to the touch and has dry skin. What are you thinking here? First thing that comes to my mind here is this certainly sounds like a potential opioid intoxication. We have small pupils, respiratory depression, with otherwise relatively normal and preserved vital signs. So what we call a narcotic toxidrome certainly would look like this. How are we going to treat this? In this case, the biggest abnormalities are really the respiratory rate and those shallow breaths. So by supporting respirations, whether that's through BVM or whether that's through a reversal agent like Narcan, really will be the most important thing here. Because her heart rate and her blood pressure are doing okay. What she needs help with is her breathing. Yeah, great. And I think this is a good plug, too, in just avoiding that classic trap uh, as a paramedic is you come across a patient who's unconscious, kind of unresponsive and not breathing very well. And the first thing we do, you know, we do our ABCs and we look at their airway um, and she doesn't have the mental status to maintain it. We look at her breathing and her breathing is not adequate. And so we want to stop there and fix that problem. And, and often our first thought is, OK, let's intubate. But this is just a plug to make sure you don't forget about your reversible causes. So opiate overdose doesn't need a tube. She needs Narcan and hopefully that will help support her respiration. And hypoglycemia is another big one. So checking a sugar before we jump straight to intubating somebody. So if we're going to give Narcan, what's our goal of Narcan and uh, how much should we give? So the biggest goal of Narcan, the way it works is as an opioid reversal agent. It acts on those mu receptors and kicks the opioid off, which allows that patient to start breathing again because they no longer have that respiratory depression action there. The key to this, though, is that you want to give enough that you're allowed to start breathing again, um, but not so much that somebody goes into terrible opioid withdrawal. Generally, I start with uh, 0.4 or 0.5 and go up from there. Many places will start with one milligram. If somebody takes, you know, multiple doses of one milligram or two, four, more than that in a short period of time, I would suggest that it's probably best to consider either whether this is the right treatment for this patient, and we can talk more about why that might be, or consider whether this person has had a prolonged downtime. Let's go ahead and talk about that. If we get to, we're given our second dose of Narcan now, they've gotten four milligrams and we don't seem to be making much headway. What should be running through the back of our head? The big two things here are, number one, is there something this could be that's not a classic opioid? So certainly we can see things that look similar to an opioid toxidrome, um, but may not respond to naloxone quite the same way. One of the biggest mimickers here that you may run into are your alpha-2 agonists, like clonidine which is often prescribed for anxiety, opioid withdrawal treatment, or rarely hypertension. Another alpha-2 agonist you may run into is oxymetazoline, which you can obtain over-the-counter as a nasal decongestion, but unfortunately oxymetazoline has also been implicated as a date rape drug. These act on the central nervous system to inhibit your sympathetic output. These will give you a similar CNS depression, including small pupils and decreased respirations, but they're not going to respond to naloxone. You know, the other thing to consider here is if they had such a prolonged downtime without adequate respirations that they suffered such an anoxic hit to their brain that their brain has been ischemic for a prolonged period of time and it's just not able to wake up and start telling the lungs to breathe again on their own despite adequate opiate reversal. Yeah, and at this point, it doesn't matter. If your naloxone has failed to improve your respirations and the patient has a normal blood sugar, then you have attempted to correct your reversible causes, and the only thing that's left in your algorithm is to mechanically support those respirations. Whether that's a BBM or intubation will depend on your clinical situation and protocols. Are there any dangers to giving Narcan? 
So certainly you can precipitate withdrawal in somebody who is opioid dependent. Um, and Speaking anybody, of vomit all over the back exactly. of your Exactly. <laughs> if you've ever seen opioid withdrawal, you have a patient who goes from being sleepy, minimally responsive, and not breathing very much to awake, fighting, vomiting, and screaming. And so that certainly can be uncomfortable both for you and for the patient. Um, the other thing that can sometimes happen, though, is when people have severe withdrawal, they can have some physiologic responses that go with that. So you have a big sympathomimetic surge within your body. So all of that epinephrine gets pumped right out of your adrenals, right into your blood vessels. And so that's part of why you see so much agitation. Yeah. And this just, again, highlights that the, the goal of Narcan is not to make them wake up and start talking to me and answering my questions. The goal really is to just get them to breathe adequately on their own again with minimal support. Exactly. You want to find that sweet spot. The other piece that's sort of unique that you can see is sometimes uh, pulmonary edema. And pulmonary edema in these settings is actually really interesting. There's a few different reasons why it could happen. Sometimes it has to do with the fact that the Narcan, when it starts working, doesn't affect every single part of your body quite as quickly. And so it actually wakes up your respiratory centers before you wake up things like your glottic response. Um, so what happens is you take a big, deep breath as your respiratory drive wakes up against a closed glottis, and that actually causes negative pressure that can pull extra fluid into the lung. The other piece, though, is that you can get this flash pulmonary edema just in the setting of opioid overdose, even without naloxone. And that has to do with the respiratory acidosis that's developed. That acidosis causes leaky pulmonary vessels and causes some fluid to leak into the lungs regardless. So just remember that if you have a patient who is breathing but still hypoxic in these cases, think about pulmonary edema as a potential cause. All right, let's move on to case three. You're called to a party. Friend notes that this individual took a handful of unknown medications that were supposed to relax him, and now he's unconscious. His mildly decreased respiratory rate, uh, normal pupils and normal vitals, though. What are you thinking here? I mean, this certainly sounds like a sedative hypnotic to me. You've got somebody with a decreased level of consciousness, but pretty normal vital signs and pupils that aren't particularly small. Unlike the opioid case that we talked about, you know, that respiratory rate is preserved and the pupils are preserved. So a little bit different. And goals of treatment here? Um, again, you really want to support them and make sure that they are managing their ABCs. You can kind of start with your usual process in this and sort of go from there. In some cases, airway may actually be your biggest issue. Even though they're breathing, if they're, for example, vomiting, they may not be managing their airway so well. So that will give you sort of the place to start. Yeah, great. No good, perfect reversal agent here, but really tends not to cause as many of the vital signs, abnormalities as we see with some other toxidromes and often doesn't even cause the respiratory depression unless taken in very large doses. So if that does occur, that's what you're looking out for is the respiratory depression. Just make sure that you're kind of supporting their respirations with uh, BBM or O2 face mask or at very last resort uh, intubation. Absolutely. All right, last case. We have a 38-year-old female. She's at the local 7-Eleven acting pretty strangely. You get there and the patient is hallucinating. She's mildly agitated. Her heart rate is 140. Respiratory rate is 18. Blood pressure is 140 over 88. Her pupils are 6 millimeters. Skin is warm to the touch, dry, and flushed. She's tachycardic, but relatively normal respirations. She screams a bunch of obscenities at you, but you have no idea what they, what they mean. Gosh, this sounds so familiar. <laughs> I mean, you know, once again, this is that perfect anticholinergic toxidrome. Red as a bee. Red and flushed skin. Dry as a bone. Dry skin. Blind as a bat. Large pupils. Mad as a hatter. 
confused, hallucinating, and incomprehensible speech. She has got those hallucinations. She's responding to that internal stimuli. She's got those big pupils, but, you know, I'm looking for sort of those pieces that really stand out here. She really fits that rhyme that uh, we always talk about. She's red as a beet, she's dry as a bone, she's blind as a bat, she's mad as a hatter. All that put together screams anticholinergic toxicity to me, even if I can't quite understand what it's saying. Red as a beet, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, mad as a hatter. And the mad as a hatter piece is often these patients will be very agitated despite you know adequate benzodiazepines. And sometimes this is due to just a very severe urinary retention. And once you decompress their bladder, they feel a ton better. Can you talk about kind of the mechanisms behind that? When you think about, you know, your anticholinergic picture, what you're seeing is basically revealing all of these underlying high sympathetic tone states. And one of the things that happens in the setting of a high sympathetic tone is you actually have sphincter contraction, particularly within the bladder. And so basically people get this terrible urinary retention because your body is shunting all its blood flow to other places and other things to do. And what happens is they get these extremely large distended bladders. And anybody who's seen um, an older patient with urinary retention, they can be agitated and miserable and seem really confused. And you might think it's a UTI, but as soon as you start draining that urine out, their mental status actually gets better. This is a pretty similar phenomenon that we see here as well. Well, there you have it. Four cases to highlight some of the nuances in presentation, pathophysiology, and treatment of these four toxidromes. We're going to summarize it now. We're going to start by breaking these up into our uppers and our downers. We're going to keep this simple. If they're fighting you, then they're probably on an upper. Now, when it comes to your physiologic stimulants, there are a lot of different drug classes here, but there are two very distinct toxidromes we want to be aware of. Your sympathomimetics and your anticholinergics. The biggest difference here is your sympathomimetics will be profusely diaphoretic, while your anticholinergics are going to be dry as a bone. Anticholinergics also tend to be less agitated, have less comprehensible speech, and have more hallucinations. That being said, there's a lot of overlap, and all of your physiologic stimulants are generally going to be treated pretty much the same. Goal here is going to be to get them calm, cool, and relaxed with priorities 1 through 10 to give them benzos when they need it. Benzos, benzos, benzos. Next, you're going to want to recognize that hyperthermia is the number one predictor of mortality in these patients. Adequately sedating the patient will shut down a lot of the hypermetabolism that is driving their hyperthermia, acidosis, and other metabolic arrangements. But after adequate sedation is remembering to get them out of the hot sun and into the back of a cool ambulance. Crank that AC and make sure not to bury them under a pound of blankets. Finally, you're going to want to turn down the lights, turn down the music, Maybe even put on some tranquil ocean wave sounds and create a relaxed environment. The key is to avoid further triggering the patient. This is the patient that if you are sitting on top of them and fighting them for a prolonged period of time, they will develop such an acidosis that it's going to kill them. So I will say again, sedate early and sedate often. Now if you're fighting them to stay awake, then you're likely dealing with a physiologic depressant. But don't forget about your other reversible causes of CNS depression here, such as your hypo or hyperglycemia. So when we're talking about the sedative toxidrome, your hallmark here is going to be a severely depressed mental status, but relatively preserved vital signs. These drugs tend not to cause a respiratory insufficiency seen with our opioids unless co-ingested or taken in massive quantities. That being said, airway protection will likely be your biggest concern, and these patients will occasionally need to be intubated for that very concern. Now, when it comes to opioids, 
I think we are all very familiar with this toxidrome. We're also all very familiar with the role of naloxone in this toxidrome. The role of naloxone here, though, is not to wake the patient up and get them talking to you, but merely to get the patient to a point where they are breathing adequately on their own. Giving too much can precipitate withdrawals, and this all means a bad time for everyone. Janetta recommends starting with 0.5 milligrams and titrating up from there, but this may depend on your local protocols. And given the limited resources we have pre-hospitally, starting with a slightly larger dose may not be unreasonable. Another important mention here is the peri-arrest patient. This is not the time to mess around with small aliquots. Go ahead and just give them the full 2 milligrams. If the naloxone has improved the patient's respiratory status, but they continue to remain hypoxic, consider if they may have developed pulmonary edema. If the patient is not responding to naloxone, then consider your mimickers. Consider things such as alpha-2 medications or maybe prolonged hypoxic injury that has just damaged the respiratory centers to the point where the patient's not going to wake up and start breathing on their own. Either way, the treatment will be mechanical respiratory support. Remember, at the end of the day, you don't have to know what they took. You just have to react to what you're seeing in front of you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for more high-yield advanced content next month. 